to John chapter 16. We're going to read from verse 5 through 15 this morning, uh, where Jesus teaches us about the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. It has been a, uh, it has been a good week. Uh, we've quieted our hearts. We've focused our minds. We've turned our heart toward God. We've let Him speak to us. And He's revealed to us, I think, and those that have been here, things about our pride, about our devotion to self-promotion that we don't usually, that we don't always comfortably recognize. And you know, I want, you to, tell, I want to tell you this, that one of the most refreshing things for me was just hearing other sincere, broken-hearted people praying prayers of repentance. It was, it was, it was remarkably enriching and encouraging to me and it helped me humble myself to hear others humbling themselves. So, you know, there, there, there's something to be gained by coming out. I hope you will come and let the Holy Spirit work in you as we continue this focus on seeking the face of the Lord. You know, the, uh, before we read the Scripture, just one last comment about this week. The verse that sort of sums up the week and, and really this whole endeavor for me is the famous saying of Jesus, the very first beatitude, right? He says what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's he saying? Those who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy, those who recognize their spiritual poverty, who acknowledge it and come to me, are the ones who receive my blessings, my effective rule. If you want God to take charge of your life, then acknowledge your spiritual poverty and seek Him. And that's what we've been doing all week. And I just want to encourage you to do that. It is well, it is time well spent. So let's read John, chapter 16, starting with verse 5. And I'm going to read all the way through verse 15, and we'll come back and look it over in just a moment. These are all the words of Jesus. Now I am going to Him who sent me. I'm sorry, I should tell you and remind you that Jesus speaks these words in the climactic hours of His life on earth. This is called the Upper Room Discourse because it's given in the Upper Room following the Last Supper. And Jesus is anticipating the events that are to occur first in the Garden and then on the cross and all the punishment in between. These are climactic bits of instruction. Once again, verse 5. Now I am going to Him who sent me. Yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the Counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. When He comes, He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in Me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see Me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. 
He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Father, I pray that you will, that you will take this word, your own words, and burn them into our hearts, Lord. Uh, impress them on our minds and enable us to penetrate the encouragement, the truth, the hope, and the life that is found through them. I pray, Lord, that you will raise our expectation of what the Spirit will do in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So this week, we've been acknowledging our emptiness. We've been confessing our pride and recognizing how spiritually empty we are if left to our own devices. And as we've been doing that, we've been implicitly, I think, asking the Lord to fill us, to remove what was unworthy and to replace it, really, with His Holy Spirit. And so, my big idea today is this. When we see our spiritual poverty and set our hearts on seeking the Lord Jesus, He sends us His Holy Spirit to work wonderfully within us. So you see, my sermon flows out of the experience of this week. When we set to seeking Jesus, He sends His Holy Spirit and works in us. Let's think about that. Um, it has always been God's plan for His people to be filled with the Holy Spirit, for His people to receive the Holy Spirit so that they're able to live God-pleasing lives. It's always been God's plan to work this Christian life from the inside out by the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's never been His plan to say to us, here's the list of rules, go after that and take care of it on your own. Because you can't do it. Because nobody can do that. We just can't live up to God's expectations. And you know, that plan actually even precedes the possibility of living according to that plan. Listen to God's promise given to the broken Israelite exiles while they were in Babylon. And in this promise, given by Ezekiel, God is predicting the situation in which we have the privilege of living. Here's what he says. The Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I'm sorry, this is Ezekiel 36, 25. You just listen, please. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So what's God promising? In essence, He's saying, I'm going to give you a new heart by giving you my spirit. I'm going to... I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to move you from within to follow my laws because I put my Spirit in you. You are going to care about what I care about and you're going to respond to my directions. So, 
In other words, I'm going to make it possible for you to do what I commanded the Israelites to do. They were unable to perfectly fulfill my expectations, but I'm going to give you the Spirit to enable that from within. Amen? That's good news. And that predicts, this passage predicts the wonders that, become, that are true for a person who puts their faith in Christ. Because a person who puts their faith in Christ is born again by the Spirit. The Spirit gives a, genuine, a person who genuinely repents and believes, receives the Spirit, giving them a new birth. You know, you've, you've heard, I don't know what you think about it, some of us have had sort of negative feelings about the term new birth or being born again, but that's exactly what it's describing. It's what happens when a sincere person says yes to Christ and believes in Christ. God performs a change by imparting the Holy Spirit and with Him a new life. That's a great thing. Amen. And Christians live as Christians when the Spirit moves them from within, only when we have the, hope of the help of the Holy Spirit, is it possible to live a truly God-pleasing life. Amen? And, and here's another way to say that. Christians are people of the Holy Spirit. Christians are people of the Holy Spirit. And I want to I detail that for a minute, but you know... I better be a person of the Holy Spirit. And on this, in this very moment, the Holy Spirit is reminding me of something I forgot. And that is that you need to know, because it's pretty cool, that this morning, little Deontay Morrow was not only here under the care of his mother and his grandmother and his great-grandmother, whom you saw on the platform, but also present with us this morning are his great-great-grandmother, and his great-great-great-grandmother. Six generations. So Mrs. Parker and, uh, and, and Myrtle's mom, we're glad you're here. Um, that's on you. I don't... Never happened to me before. I've never been in, in a place where six generations have been present to dedicate... Well, five generations have been present to dedicate the sixth generation to Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Hallelujah! <laughs> Well, you know, if we're, if we're people of the Spirit, then I guess we'd better be prepared to be interrupted, right? So there you go. Um, the Holy Spirit is, is working. We, the, the, the Christians are people who live by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus makes that perfectly clear in the final instructions He's giving His disciples. In the upper room discourse I've already referred to is that longer passage that begins in John 14 and goes all the way through John 16. And in that passage... He says a number of things to his disciples to prepare them for life after his crucifixion. He tells them to expect heaven. He talks to them about handling the hatred of the world. He talks to them about living with a joy no one can steal from you. He talks to them about staying connected to him like a branch connected to a vine. But he especially talks about relying on the Holy Spirit. Five Different places. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit in this one discourse. And that really is the thrust of what he's telling them. You'll need the help of the Holy Spirit. 
If you have the help of the Holy Spirit, you'll be able to stand in the midst of all of life's challenges. So five times in the upper room discourse, he promises to send the Holy Spirit, beginning with this promise. This is John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, where Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. For He lives with you, and He will be in you. He says, I'm going to send you another counselor. Uh, More literally, that word counselor, it's the Greek word paraclete. It can be translated a number of ways, but most literally it means one who is called alongside to help. So the Holy Spirit, he says, is going to come as your helper, as your counselor, as your advocate. And he's going to work on your behalf. He's going to... He's going to help you. But the best news of the passage that I just read is not just that the Holy Spirit's going to come and help you. Because that could happen, you know, by Him sort of, you know, giving you a textbook and saying, here, read these words and follow them. He's not only going to help us by being alongside us, He's going to help us by coming inside us. He is with you and He will be in you. Jesus is, is pointing forward to the day of Pentecost when the Spirit comes on the church and fills them with internal help and power. And so he's already got that in mind. He says the Spirit's going to be with you and He's going to be in you. So I want you to remember that, that the Holy Spirit is a person who moves on us to live in us. Amen? To live in us. So just think about that. Uh, I was thinking about that as I prepared this message. thinking, wow, you mean the Holy Spirit then is not just some objective force. You remember that commercial? I think it was a Super Bowl commercial. The little kid that was dressed as Darth Vader, right? And he was trying to do things with his, you know, with his powers. He didn't have powers, but he... And his dad, you know, presses the remote and the car, you know, the, the lights flash and the car starts. Remember that one? Sometimes we think of the Holy Spirit as that kind of force. Our remote control, man. Give me that remote control. Holy Spirit, go to work. Holy Spirit's not a force. He's a person. Holy Spirit's not a commodity. Simon wanted to buy the, you know, buy the Holy Spirit so he could impart power to other people. He can't buy the Holy Spirit. He's a person. He has feelings. He, he lives with us so we can know Him as a person. We can listen to Him. We can talk with Him. We can learn from Him. We can grieve Him. We can insult Him. The Holy Spirit is a person. And and, and believe it or not, if you're a Christian today, I mean, hopefully you do. We probably all do believe that the Spirit as a person is dwelling in you. He's got a personality and you you can interact with Him as, as a person. So Jesus lets His disciples know that's the first thing. Um, about the Holy Spirit. And only a few minutes later, he lets his disciples know that he's going to be leaving them, but it's better for them that he leaves earth. Why is it better? I'll, I'll just reread what we just read a moment ago. He says, Now I'm going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asks me, Where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth. It's for your good, good that I'm going away. Unless I go away... The Counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. So you can understand 
how it is when the disciples hear Jesus say he's leaving, they are so grief-struck that they can't even think. You know, nobody asks them, well, well, Lord, where are you going? They can't even think. They're just so dumbstruck by this thought. Jesus is leaving. But Jesus assures them, and he says, it's not as bad as you think. In fact, it's good for you that I'll be leaving. Because if I leave, then I can send the Holy Spirit to you. Because he knows it's only by dying and rising and ascending to heaven that he will be able to send the Holy Spirit to them. Right? And they must have wondered what Jesus meant by this all the way up until the day of Pentecost when they experienced it for themselves. Now, and, and, and they had experiences with the Holy Spirit. Don't get me wrong, John. Uh, Jesus breathes on them after his resurrection. They have an experience of the Spirit. But the, the fullness of that experience is, comes on the day of Pentecost. And right up to that day, they must have been wondering, how is it better, Jesus? How is it better that you're not here? Or that you're not going to be here if you speak, you know, think of that resurrection time. Well, they get it. And what happens then is that they, they understand on the day of Pentecost that the Spirit of Christ has come to reside in all of them. That from, from that day forward, all believers will be the recipients of the Holy Spirit. And they see that the life and power of Jesus will fill all believers and can spread throughout the entire world uh, at once. It's not localized. It's not stuck in the body of the physical Jesus. It is spread through the physical bodies of all the believers everywhere at all times on earth. And, and, and from that day on, they understood that all believers can simultaneously enjoy companionship with Jesus and spread the life of Jesus by the power that's working within them. Basically, Jesus is saying, Christians are people of the Spirit because it's the Spirit that makes them alive and it's the Spirit that lives within them. You know this? Nobody can tap into the potentials of your life like the Holy Spirit. You probably, probably everybody in this room has undiscovered potentials. There are things that, that God has gifted you to do that you aren't yet doing. And it's not a guilt trip. That's just that. Hopefully that's a, 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 a point of hope. Because, you know, no matter where you are in life, no matter how old you are, there are things that are yet to be discovered. And nobody knows that stuff about you. And nobody can tap into those potentials like the Holy Spirit can tap into those potentials. Amen? You know, I don't, I, I don't think I ever would have become a public speaker if I had not been born again and filled with the Holy Spirit. Because I can remember very well the dread that sat, set upon me when, it, when I knew it was my day to give an oral report in high school. I mean, it was like, ah, anything but. And, 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 you know, I really didn't expect to be doing public speaking. I didn't want to do public speaking. Get me out of here, you know. But upon receiving the Holy Spirit and, and having a new reason to speak, then I wanted to be a public speaker. And I'm sure that potential was a result of this coming to me. So, what are those potentials? They're there, folks, in your life. Nobody better than the Holy Spirit can tap into and release those potentials. Amen? And... Uh, 
So, you know, Jesus says Christians are people of the Holy Spirit. He's the helper. But, you know, if you want His help, you're going to have to ask Him to help you. Right? I mean, if you want the help of the Holy Spirit, He doesn't impose His way on you. He doesn't force you to be this or that. He gives you the, the opportunity to invite Him, but you have to invite Him. Amen? So what about you? What are the things that the Holy Spirit wants to impart to you? I mean, you don't know, perhaps. Maybe you do. You might have an inkling. And I just invite you, you know, this time, this past week has been a great time to be in His presence. And I don't know if that's true for anybody, but it's probably true that some have been, oh, become aware of things the Lord wants to do through them that aren't yet occurring. And although that might be scary at first, that's wonderful in the long run because nobody wants to stay the same. Amen? Nobody wants to be tomorrow just what you were yesterday and the day before that and the day before that. Everybody wants to grow. And the Spirit is the one who will help us do that. Well, if we are going to tap into all the grace and power that's available through the Spirit, we need to understand how He works. And that's why we're in John 16. I want to think just a little bit about a few of the things Jesus says in John 16 about how the Spirit works. And basically, He says two things. He says that the Spirit convicts the world, number one. And number two, that the Spirit communicates with believers. Okay? So let's think about those two things. First of all, the Spirit convicts the world, the Bible says here, in, of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. So let me, the emphasis of what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying that the, the Spirit has a particular emphasis in His relating or in interacting with non-believers, with the unbelieving world. If He acts as an advocate for the believer, He stands as a prosecuting attorney with the unbeliever. Because it is His responsibility, it is His purpose to convince them of sin and righteousness and judgment. Well, how does the Holy Spirit do that? Or, and maybe a better translation is this one, um, He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. So, the Spirit has that job. The Spirit is working in people's hearts and minds to enable them to recognize their sin and to recognize what is truly righteous and to remember that there is a judgment to come. And how many of you know that those three realities are not frequently mentioned in popular culture? And if, they're due, if they are mentioned, they're mentioned with a smirk. Can I get an amen or a witness or whatever it is? I mean, you know that's true you know that the, the world tries not to think most often about sin as it really is, particularly as Jesus here defines it, and about what is really righteousness, because that has to be defined in relation to God, and what is judgment. The, the judgment especially, man, that's off the table. Because all three of these realities posit and demand a God. And if there is no God, as the secular world tends to prefer, then these things can't be discussed. 
Well, Jesus wants them to discuss and the Holy Spirit wants them to discuss and the Holy be discussed and the Holy Spirit has as his task bringing these things to light. So how does he do that? Well, he can do it in two ways. He can do it directly by his unmediated influence on the hearts and minds of unbelievers or he can do it indirectly and he usually does it indirectly mediating his revelation through the witness of Scripture or Christian. So let's talk about the first kind. I think my own experience gives evidence that the Spirit can work directly on a heart to convince a person of guilt in regard to sin. And I've told this story, so I'll abbreviate it, really, but I was a secular college student living according to the values and practices and habits of the world in a secular university um, without God in my conscious experience. And... and, and, and uh, so I was, just, I was just doing my own thing. I was doing the world's thing. I was following the world's ways. And uh, not a believer. And one of the things, however, that caught my attention, is just at that time, the kind of the natural food movement began to get some traction. I mean, the hippie movement was just, you know, was still alive and on the front page. And, and, and one of the things that was true of many people in that movement was they were trying to uh, eat more naturally and eat more healthfully. And I became convinced that I ought to eat more healthfully, especially by reducing my sugar intake because sugar's a bad guy, right? And, uh, and so I was convinced that I should do that. And so I, I, I made some plans to do that, and I, and I did. And one of the things that I did was that, uh, and by the way, as a, an ice cream and candy lover... That was not what I wanted to really do. I didn't really want to not... I didn't want to reduce those things, but I became convinced it was right, and so I gave it some try. And I went and I bought some whole grain crackers and honey, and I figured, well, I will substitute this for candy and ice cream. Good idea. As long as it worked, which was about three days. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, by the, by the fourth day, you know, I, I followed my former instincts over to the snack bar and had a bowl of ice cream. And, uh, and, and I battled this thing back and forth for, over the course of weeks until, I, until I, I collapsed. I finally gave in and I realized, ain't no way I'm going to do this. <laughs> and I was, at one, on the one hand, of course, I suppose sinfully relieved, but on the other hand, I was really convicted. Oddly enough, you know, God wasn't in the picture. This wasn't about some serious moral issue, I don't think. This was about how much sugar I was eating, and the Holy Spirit, nevertheless, was convincing me of something, that I was enslaved to this particular appetite. I couldn't act against it at least not for a long time and not effectively. And I realized that if I was enslaved to that appetite, that I was also subject to slavery in respect to other appetites. And that even if I wanted to, and even if I knew it to be right, I couldn't free myself from my own passions. Does that make sense? And for the first time, I realized that I was helpless. 
I realized something about my sinful nature that I didn't realize. I thought up to that point, I guess I thought I could just handle life. And I was young and stupid, but I figured out through this little thing and the direct working of the Holy Spirit, I have no doubt about it, convincing me that I was morally impotent and in need of divine help, of some kind of help. I didn't actually consider divine help, first of all, but I recognized I The Holy Spirit convinced me of that. And that began a more passionate pursuit for some answer. How can I fix the brokenness within? I felt like I was that wretched man that Paul says, I do what I don't want to do, I do what I hate, and I don't do what I ought to do. That was me, the wretched man, and I wrestled with that and felt the Holy Spirit showed me that. And eventually, you know, the story ends well. uh, Somebody told me the Gospel and I believed But it was the Holy Spirit working directly in my heart to make me want to find a Savior. But usually, the Holy Spirit works through the witness of Scripture or Christians or both. A good friend of mine shared with me his story. uh, And when he shared it, he shared it in great distress of how the Spirit worked through direct direct influence and the witness of another Christian to convince him of guilt. Uh, This guy had been living high. He'd been riding the surge of demand for computer consulting in the late 1980s. There was so much money flooding to him because of his computer expertise that he he was just indulging it. He was just... Greed got the best of him, Right? And here's, he, he, he coveted wildly, he worked incessantly, he spent recklessly, and uh, eventually he began to steal expensive computer equipment from his employer. And you know, truth is, it didn't bother him. Because his rationale was, look, everybody plays this game. What's wrong with gaming the system? It's there to be gamed. That was his idea. And, uh, but, you know, interestingly, in this computer consulting business, one of his clients was a, an international Christian who came over from Denmark and with whom he was working. And, and this guy shared with him his faith in Jesus Christ. And, and my friend at the time hardened his heart to the gospel but put on a polite appearance so as not to lose the account. You know how you do that. And so he heard a little bit of the gospel. He let him say a few things, but he hardened his heart to it He wasn't going to listen to this. But as he stole more and more, you know, even though he didn't, wasn't saying to himself, you shall not steal, he knew the commandment. And he became more and more uncomfortable with what was going on in his heart. It it came to mind and he felt felt guilty for his thievery. But you know, it's funny. It sort of bled over into all the rest of his life because he began to feel not only guilty for his thievery, but for his entire life. And he couldn't figure out why. He was just living by the world's standards, doing the world's thing. Sure, maybe he was a little excessive, and yeah, maybe he shouldn't be stealing. But what's, what about the rest? Why am I feeling altogether ugly? He didn't really know. Well, one evening at the end of a long work day, He returned to his unlit home and was groping his way down the hallway to get to the light switch when he passed a mirror. 
And as he passed this mirror, there was just enough light in the room to look at it and glance and see his face. Only he didn't see his face. What he saw was a ghostly, pale, hideously ugly, uh, grotesquely misshapen face that was the ugliest face he had ever seen. And he, he stepped back, he, jolted, he was jolted by what he saw, and he instantly realized that he was not just looking at a mirror reflection, he was looking at, of his physical being, he was looking at a reflection of his soul. And he remembered, in that moment, how he had refused to give that Christian guy a chance to talk to him. And somehow he knew that he had been guilty of saying no to God. Not just saying, I won't, I won't give this Christian time of day. He knew somehow now, by seeing this vision, that he had been dealing with God. And it was the Holy Spirit who was showing him the reality of the sin of his soul. And it was the Holy Spirit who was connecting that for him to the witness of Christ that this guy had been sharing with him. Now the story ends well, you could imagine. I mean, he's telling me this because after seeing this and after putting two and two together, he went and he asked the fellow, well, tell me more. He eventually gets saved and, uh, and he's a follower of Christ, a devoted follower of Christ to this day. But in that moment in the hallway, the Holy Spirit acted directly on his heart, and the Holy Spirit brought to mind the witness of a Christian. And those two things together enabled him to recognize that he was a sinner. Amen? In the background of his experience, a Christian was being used as a witness. So when an unbeliever sees a Christian trusting Christ, worshiping Christ, living with faith, you know what? The Spirit can use that believer as a visual aid to demonstrate that a faith life is livable, that there is a God who counts and matters. Christians can be a visual aid for the unbeliever. And the presence of an unbeliever can reveal the rightness of believing. I'm sorry, the rightness, yes, the rightness of believing and the wrongness of refusing to believe in Jesus Christ. So, in both direct ways and indirect ways, the Spirit convinced my friend that he was a sinner, not only guilty of theft, but guilty of refusing God's offer of salvation in Christ. And that's when he repented. When he realized he was dealing with God. And he wasn't able to handle life on his own. So what's the deal? Well, dear friends, we need to present Christ, right? In the lives we live and in the words of our lips. Because when an unbeliever hears a Christian say something like, because Jesus died for me, God forgives my sins. Or I have peace with God because Jesus paid the price for my sins. They are hearing about true righteousness, the righteousness demonstrated in Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, and, 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 they, are, and they are hearing that they, can, that they are sinners if they refuse that. That may not be how you present it, but that's the implicit message. 
And when an unbeliever hears a Christian express their confident expectation of admittance to heaven on the basis of Christ, right? Not, not because they're good enough to get in, but because Christ was good for them. When, a Christian, when a, an unbeliever hears a Christian say, look, I can go to heaven, not because I'm good, but because he's good, they are reminded that you must pass an admission test. There is judgment. And that only Christ has the entry key. Amen? Amen. So Jesus is saying, look, the Holy Spirit in the world will convince unbelievers with regards to sin because they don't believe in me, with regards to righteousness because I'm going to the Father and I've demonstrated what true righteousness is in my dying. And uh, judgment because Satan has been judged. Amen? But you know... That's not just, that's not something the Holy Spirit does only in unbelievers. I mean, insofar as believers are enmeshed in this world, insofar as believers share the world's value system or belief system or, or, or participate in its ungodly practices, to that degree, the Holy Spirit will do the same work in us, right? The Holy Spirit will convince us concerning our unbelief or our self-righteousness or our refusal to face up to judgment. And, and, and no, that's a good thing. And you know, the truth is, the reason that I'm sharing from this passage today is because as we spent an entire week, or as I spent an entire week, face-to-face with my pride, face-to-face with the Lord and facing my own pride and choosing to humble myself, I became so much more grateful for the help of the Holy Spirit to do that, to open my eyes and to take me deeper into the recognition of my sin and of His grace. Amen? And secondly, and I'm going to wrap up real quick on this, the Holy Spirit communicates truth to believers. Just go back to John 16. Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. You see, as well as the disciples knew Jesus, there were truths about Jesus He couldn't share with them. There were truths about Jesus that only the Holy Spirit could reveal, and it would take Him time and the, and the Holy Spirit's grace to do it. In fact, it will take more time than eternity allows to reveal all the truth there is to know about Jesus. John says at the end of his Gospel that if everything Jesus said and did was recorded, not all the books in the world could hold it or the truths that lie behind it. So Jesus is saying, look, this is an infinite project and you're going to need the help of the Holy Spirit to bring you through this and He can teach you. And, and, then, and what He says is the Spirit will guide you into all the truth there is about Christ. Um, the Holy Spirit will do that for you and me, folks. Amen? Now, how's he do it? Well, yeah, surely he's going to use Scripture. He's going to point to the highlights of the life of Christ, right? Jesus goes to the Mount of Transfiguration. His face shines. His clothes shine. His glory is revealed. Jesus goes to the garden and, and he says, Not my will, but your will be done. Father, I'll die on their behalf. Jesus goes to the cross and he says, It is finished. And when he says that, the rock split. The earth quakes. 
These are moments of, of glory. And when we, the resurrected Christ stands before His, His apostles, He says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. These are moments of glory. The Spirit of God will reveal His glory in them. But you know what? I'm asking the Lord this. That not only in critical moments and through high points in Scripture, but in the midst of our daily experience, the Holy Spirit will show us fresh and new things about the glory and the truth of Jesus Christ. Amen? Will show us and remind us what we sang about earlier. Jesus is the Lion of Judah. If sin is our enemy, Jesus is our victor. Amen? He's winning the fight against sin and death and hell. He's won it already, in fact, and he, he brings us into his victory. He's the Lion of Judah. I want to see that. The Spirit will reveal it. And he's the Lamb of God. I want to see that. I want to know that when I sin, he's there with his grace. He's there and ready to forgive. I want to see that. And the Spirit will show that too. He'll show Jesus as lion. He'll show Jesus to us as lamb. And so what are we going to do? We're going to trust him. Amen? And we're going to believe that as we set our hearts on seeking God, he will send us his Holy Spirit to work wonderfully within us, to convince us of sin. Hallelujah and to reveal His glory. Would you stand with me this morning? Holy Spirit, we welcome You. Holy Spirit, we need You. Holy Spirit, I thank You that You're here. Lord, I thank you that you gave these promises and it's all true. Thank you, Lord, that you will convince us of sin and righteousness and judgment. You'll remind us. You'll, you'll confront us. You'll challenge us. You'll help us to see and repent of our sin. Thank you. And Lord, I thank you that you also lead us into a full discovery of your glory, a deeper discovery of your glory. So, Spirit of God, keep up that work, Lord. Open our minds and bless us with this revelation. Amen.